you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians 2. You'll need a Bible as we go through today's message, so the guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, then get their attention. They'll get one of those to you, marked for you at 1 Thessalonians 2. Keep that Bible as our gift to you because we want everybody to own a copy of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 2. Several years ago, I heard someone say, the local church is the hope of the world. Now, that's a huge statement. But if I, but I think if we understand that, of course, Jesus is the ultimate hope, then it's actually true to say that the local church is the hope of the world because in the Bible, it is the church that carries out the ministry of Christ in his world. This is why your New Testament is so very church-centered. The book of Acts records the beginning of the church, and then churches were started in places like Jerusalem, and Antioch, and Colossae, and Ephesus, and Philippi, and Corinth, and Thessalonica, and more. Now, when I mention those cities, you may recognize some of the names because they're associated with individual books in your New Testament. First and second Corinthians are letters to the church at Corinth. Colossians to the church at Colossae. Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. Philippians to Philippi. And this book that we're studying is written to, as we've seen the last two weeks, what is called a model church in the city of Thessalonica. So the New Testament is dominated by the church because the church is God's vehicle to accomplish his work in his world. So important is the church that it's imperative that it be healthy in order to be able to advance the work of God And so these letters are written primarily to address issues that have or may arise within those churches and that could threaten their effectiveness. The New Testament letters, like 1 Thessalonians, are what are called occasional documents. That is, they were written to address a particular occasion or circumstance. And you can tell what was going on that prompted the letter by the content of that letter. You'll know what the occasion was by seeing what's being addressed in that particular book. And as you do that, as you read those letters and you look for the occasion, you look for the things that were going on that prompted Paul to write these letters to these churches. It's amazing how many times the occasion is the defense of the church's leaders against attacks from detractors. The leaders of the church, principally the Apostle Paul, who planted most of those churches, would often be attacked and the actual or potential danger was such a threat to the church that it had to be addressed. Now, the fact that the great Apostle Paul and other leaders in the Bible faced opposition is instructive for us. Paul faced opposition. Jesus faced opposition. All the apostles faced opposition. So how can any of us much lesser ministers then escape opposition? In fact, I would say this. If you never face opposition, you're not preaching the gospel. 
In fact, let me widen this beyond just vocational ministers to all of us. In your personal ministry, if everyone likes what you say, you're not telling the truth. We sometimes say, yeah, but it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And that at times is true. It's been true at times for me in my own ministry. But in the case of Paul, it was what he said. And further, bear this in mind, friends, that those who refuse to repent will not like what you say or how you say it until they're willing to receive truth. Every Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church is an outpost in spiritual warfare. The enemy hates what we're doing and hates those who are doing it. In John Bunyan's classic allegory of the Christian life, pilgrim's progress. Christian was led into a room where the interpreter pointed out a portrait hanging on the wall. The picture depicted a faithful minister in these words. The man whose picture this is, is one of a thousand. You see him with his eyes lifted up to heaven, the best of books in his hand, and the law of truth written on his lips. This shows that his work is to know and unfold dark things to sinners. You see him standing as if he were pleading with men. The world behind him, a crown hanging over his head. This shows that by neglecting and despising present things for the love that he has for his master's service, he is sure to have glory for his reward in the next world. Christian needed to be able to recognize a true minister Because his own journey to the celestial city required him to discern between true and false spiritual guides. A healthy church has spiritually healthy leaders, which in turn results in a healthy respect for them from the congregation. This is one important aspect of what God looks for in a church. And that's the title of this series in the book of First Thessalonians. God looks for a number of things. One of those is healthy spiritual leadership. Healthy leadership and a healthy relationship between leaders and the congregation. Now the passage we're going to consider in chapter 2 is primarily applicable to pastors, but really can be applicable to anyone who leads others. Even if you're not in a position that has a title. Because as one leadership Mentor, guru has said, leadership is influence. So whether you have a title or a position or not, we're all in a position to lead others by influencing them. So as we go through these characteristics of what a godly leader is supposed to be, don't exempt yourself from that one. Apply that to yourself in the leadership that you have, the influence you have on others. But further, use that as an evaluation and a list to pray for, for the leaders in our own church. So as we look at this passage, let's pray and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you that we're here. We're here because of you. We thank you that you've given us your word, and now we can look into it to be instructed today about what leadership should be in your church. And Lord, all of us who you have placed in leadership to feed and lead your people are humbled by these things. We say with the great apostle, who is equal to these things? The answer is certainly none of us. And apart from you, we can do nothing. But Lord, you have called us, you have placed us, all of us, 
in places of influence. Help us then to take our tasks, whatever they are, seriously and help us to be instructed from your word about the kinds of people we should be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now inserted in your program is an outline. We do that every week, so take a look at that outline. Bring it out if you don't have it out as yet. We say a couple of main things. The first one is this, that leaders must be called of God. That is, the leader must be convinced that he has, by God, in his providence, been placed in the position and circumstance that he's in. I'm not using the word calling the way it's sometimes used, especially of pastors. It's often used of a mystical thing that they just sense within themselves, and then they unilaterally declare themselves to be called. And so that's often what people say, how did you know you were called to be a pastor? And then someone will describe, you know, I just sort of felt, and I kind of felt this oomph, and and then I determined that this is what God wanted me to, to do. But instead of that, we should see calling as a desire to serve God's people that's coupled with the required gifts to carry that out. I've often said that service is where ability and opportunity meet. And in the case of a pastor or other leader, God open, opens our eyes to the need and then equips for the task. If it needs to be done and you can do it, then consider yourself called to it. Now, not everyone who can do what needs to, not everyone is able to do what needs to be done. And that evaluation should not be done individually. In the case of a pastor, it requires the input of the church culminating in the ordination as the church concurs. And then having that conviction that God has placed you where you are will have a couple of important effects then on you. One is that it will allow you to do what I say in the outline. And that is serve through adversity. Serve through adversity. Verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Now, the book of Acts records the ministry of Paul who wrote 1 Thessalonians. And it tells us that just prior to his visit to the city of Thessalonica, recorded in Acts chapter 17, he visited the city of Philippi and he encountered opposition there. Acts chapter 16 says this, The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. The jailer put them in the inner cell cell, and fastened their feet in the stocks. And in addition to that, while Paul was in the city of Thessalonica, he was evicted from that city by Jewish religious leaders who vigorously opposed him and his message. In fact, Acts chapter 17 tells us that they came to the next city on Paul's itinerary, Berea, and they caused trouble for him there. In all likelihood, then, they're not trying, they're now trying to smear Paul's reputation in Thessalonica in order to undermine his ministry and destroy the church. One commentator said this, torrential streams of criticism appear to be running across the field of Paul's labor and spiritual erosion is a real danger. 
And so Paul writes to minimize or even prevent loss. So he's planted this church, but apparently in the city of Thessalonica, he's getting opposition like he did in Philippi, like he did in Berea. And he's writing to head off the damage that that can do. Now, when the inevitable difficulties arise that follow the pursuit of a good work, whether that's at home or at work and especially in the church, it will be necessary to remember that God is with you and it is God who has given you this opportunity, this calling. Paul encountered opposition and adversity throughout his ministry. And he always had to remember what his calling was. He always had to remember in the midst of that adversity who it was that had placed him there and given him this opportunity. He said when he was leaving the city of Ephesus, and after he had been there for three years, he said this, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. Now, saying that he did not hesitate implies temptation to hesitate. He's resisted the temptation to pull his punches, so to speak, in order to provide a smoother path for his ministry. Because it's easy to serve when everyone likes you and they like what you're doing, but not so much when they don't. And when not if they don't, it will be tempting to opt for being liked rather than being truthful. And Paul says, I've resisted that temptation. I have not hesitated. Paul had a very clear sense of his calling to serve as he was and where he was, and it motivated him, come what may. He said in Romans chapter 1, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, wise and foolish. That would be everybody. And this is why I'm eager to preach the gospel at Rome. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, since then we know what it is to revere, fear the Lord. We try to persuade others for Christ's love compels us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said, I am compelled to preach and woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So in the midst of the adversity and the opposition, he always remembered, it is God who has placed me. It is God who has given me this opportunity and this calling. Now, of course, Paul had a spectacular conversion and he was directly commissioned by Christ. But those of us whose appointment is providential rather than miraculous, and that would be all of us. We should still regularly remind ourselves that we're doing God's bidding and thereby evaluate our success based on faithfulness rather than popularity. You think about it. If Paul evaluated his success based on popularity, oh man. I heard one preacher say, you know, if Moses went by popular polling in his ministry in the Old Testament, the Israelites would still be in Egypt. Faithfulness rather than popularity. If everybody always likes you, as I've said, you're probably not telling the truth. Leaders must serve through adversity that will surely come. And, in your outline, leaders must seek to please God. To please God. If you look down in verse 6, Paul says there, We are not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Now, in the passage I read earlier from 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul said he strove to persuade people compelled by the love of Christ, he said just before that this, we make it our goal to please him. 
And if your goal is to please God first, then it will affect how you go about what you do. The ultimate priority of pleasing our commanding officer will remove lesser motivations for what we do. And Paul deals with some of those lesser motivations. So I say in your outline that leaders must not have improper motives. Verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. He did not teach error, but instead he cut it straight because he knew he must give an account to God, the one whom he wants to please. So he's bearing in mind that this is what I'm about. This is the one who gave me this opportunity. It's God. And my accountability then is ultimately going to be him, not the popularity of the crowd. And in Paul's day, there were multitudes of traveling religious charlatans who were notorious for the things alleged against Paul. Perhaps the closest analogy we have today would be televangelists, many of whose scandals taint the reputation of ministers in general. Unlike the vain philosophers of his day, Paul did not teach error. Certainly his Jewish opponents would have charged Paul with falsely interpreting the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, but Paul could show from the scriptures that his teaching was true to God's word. And every preacher today should be able to do the same thing. It should be evident, for instance, that the sermons we preach are faithful expositions of the scriptures rather than our own personal thoughts. This is also why churches with strong and clear doctrinal standards are most likely to remain faithful since their teaching can be evaluated in light of God's word. And likewise, Paul did not attempt to trick anyone by convincing them to make a decision through his own cunning or speaking ability. In Paul's world, rhetoricians who were practiced in the speaking arts, could be hired to argue with great eloquence for any cause. Sort of like today, you can hire a lawyer who will argue any legal case for a large enough fee. But the apostle did not manipulate the scriptures, and he did not speak with skillful cunning so as to entrap his audiences. Instead, he insisted in places like 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul spoke with an integrity that should be observed by all ministers of God's word. As Christ's servants rely on the power of God for salvation rather than manipulative techniques that are designed to allure and to entertain. Oh man, are we filled with that in today's world and in today's church. And he could do all of that because his motives were pure according to verse 3. That is, he didn't have mixed motivations, tainted motivations. But he had one and the best motivation, a favorable evaluation from his Lord. That's why Paul would say elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 4, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. We serve to please God, not having improper motives, and I say in your outline, 
not desiring improper reward. Unable to discredit Paul's message because it could be affirmed by the scriptures. Paul's enemies then turned on the messengers to discredit them. But that could be refuted by the way in which the ministry was conducted by Paul and his associates. If we're not going to minister out of desire for improper reward, it means we must not desire to please people. Verse 4. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery. If they were trying to please people, they would have spoken in ways designed to win those people over. Using flattery to win them to themselves. Toning down the message to make it less offensive. You know that's what we have going on today, don't you? You know that our churches are watering down the gospel so that people will like us. But friends, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's not about people liking us. It's about God's truth. We give that truth in the most winsome way that we can, but only God can ultimately ultimately win some. And that by His Spirit. And so we must not have these improper motivations or desire improper reward that is pleasing people or desiring money. Verse 5. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. That is, unlike other hucksters who are in it for the money, Paul did not live above the people to whom he ministered, but instead he lived among them, often supplying his own living as a tent maker. Down in verse 9, he says he worked while with them so as not to be a burden to them. Now, dear friends, there are these hucksters around, aren't they? Many of them are on TV. Let me just say to you as directly, as kindly as I can, you should not give a dime to the people on TV that are telling you to sow a seed so that you can be blessed financially. You know who's getting blessed blessed financially through that? It's the false teachers themselves. And when you do that, you're partaking of their false teaching. They have their reward now. Enjoy it. Because that is your best life now. This is your best life now. If you're in that situation. And they will have God's reward for their blasphemy in eternity. Leaders must see themselves. And all of us, in whatever position, whatever title or no title at all, when you're in a position of influence, you see yourself as placed there, given that opportunity by God. Secondly, leaders must serve God's people. And this passage tells us how they serve. The first way we serve is gently. I say in the outline, gently. Verse 6. As apostles of Christ... We could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. So as an apostle, Paul had authority to command, but he chose rather to guide gently rather than to command harshly. 
When verse 7 says we were like young children, it's a translation of a single Greek word. And one letter difference makes that Greek word translate gently rather than like young children. And in fact, most translations have it as gently. We were, we were gentle among you. As did, in fact, the prior version of the NIV. And I think that's the better sense here. But either way, it's saying that our manner was not harmful, was not harsh. Contrary to what the detractors claimed, we were not throwing our weight around, Paul says, but we treated you tenderly as our own children in the faith. Now, of all the items in this profile of what a leader should be, I stand before you and I admit to you, this one is the most challenging for me personally. I don't have any issue or much of an issue soldiering on through adversity. That comes with the territory of being a minister of the gospel. And I signed up for this. No one's ever accused me of trying to flatter or please people. Greed is just not a temptation for me. But as I speak the truth, I have not in all instances done that in love. Sometimes in frustration because someone just will not listen over a long period of time, or sometimes because the person is manipulating or even lying to cover what they're doing. But as I confront with the truth, I can at times and have at times confronted with anger as well. James chapter 1 and verse 19 has words of instruction for me and perhaps to you too. When it says this, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now I tell you this to let you know that I seek to apply what I preach to myself. But I also do it to ask for your prayer for in this matter as I never want the issue to be about me, but about God's truth. And having said that, and having said that sincerely, as I said earlier, unrepentant people never like words of truth. But we need to ensure, and I need to ensure, that if they reject it, it's because of the message and not the messenger. So leaders must serve gently. And, I say in your outline, They must serve completely, fully. Verse 8, because we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Here Paul is saying that he and his associates gave them their very selves to the believers in Thessalonica because they had become so dear to them. How we treat people will depend on how we see people. The people of the church were precious to Paul because he saw them as God's works in progress. The gospel had had good effect in them, so now they are God's people just as Paul is and as we saw in chapter 1 last week. And we saw then that in our families and in the family of God, we don't determine who our brothers and sisters will be. You didn't choose who was going to be in your natural family, and we don't choose whom God is going to be bring to be part of this family. And they come from all backgrounds, and they bring varying kinds of baggage. 
But they have in common that God has brought them all on their journey, varying journey, though it be to the same destination, to the foot of the cross. So that being the case, I ask you, as I ask myself, is everyone in this body dear to you? Even if you have a hard time relating to them? You see, you need to be able to, I need to, we need to be able to get over the superficial presentation of that person and the baggage that they bring and the struggles that they have and the differences that they have with us and to see something much deeper and more profound and much more important, that they belong to God, that God has brought them here. That God has brought them here for us to minister together, for me to learn from them and for them to learn from us. Friends, if we are going to be the kind of church that God looks for, we are going to have to be a gospel-centered church, which I say in our newcomers orientation, which pretty much all of you have taken. I say in the very first session, that means among other things that we accept and welcome all comers. If you're a gospel-centered place, you do that. You don't pick and choose. You don't just hang out with the people you like. I'm going to move on. You're probably thankful for that. But when we close in a bit, we're going to have, as we do every week, our refreshment time. So where are you going to gravitate to during Cafe Community? To whom are you going to gravitate? Are you going to look for the person who has nobody around them? Or are you just going to hang out the whole time with the people you like? It's good and proper to greet our friends. But you got all week to do that. Friends, if we're going to be a welcoming, gospel-centered church, we're going to look for the person who's on the outside. I encourage you to do that. And that was the kind of view that Paul had of the Thessalonians. So that he was motivated to give himself sacrificially on their behalf and to do so continually. Verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. So I ask you, are you serving God's people by serving in his church? And if so, let me ask you this. Have you ever put your hand to the plow to say, I'm going to do this? And then when you got into it, you know, at first it sounded exciting and you were kind of excited about the fact that you know how we're doing something with the gifts that God has given you, which as you, you, is as it should be. But then you got into it and decided it was hard. And you quit. See, Paul didn't do that. Toil and hardship continually. And so I ask you if you've done that and you've started out and then you've stepped back, you need to get back in the game. God has called all of us to serve him with the gifts that he has given. Leaders must serve gently. They serve completely. And lastly, they must be exemplary. Verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. Paul set a clear example of personal holiness before his spiritual children in that church. And these three words of holy, righteous, and blameless describe his conduct in three relationships with God, with others, and with the world. With respect to his relationship to God, Paul was holy. 
The most basic meaning of that is to be set apart, as many of you know. And Paul lived in such a way that he was focused on pleasing and serving God. And even though he did secular work so as to provide for his needs, the purpose behind all of his labor lay in his commitment to glorify the Lord and spread his gospel. And second, with respect to people, Paul was righteous. Does not mean that he never sinned. He says in Philippians chapter 3, it's not that I've arrived, I'm pressing on. It's not that he never sinned, but that there were no obvious sin patterns in his behavior. And then third, with respect to the world, he was blameless. Enemies certainly can accuse him, but there was no dirt to stick on Paul since he conducted himself with careful honesty and integrity and godliness. These are all areas in which spiritual leaders of all kinds should apply ourselves. Holiness toward God, righteousness toward people, blamelessness before the world. How great is the need today for spiritual fathers in the church and literal fathers in the home to live uprightly before God, before their children, and before the world. And those who do that then become mentors. They have influence on others. Verse 11. For you know that we dealt with you, each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. John MacArthur observes, fathers are not only examples but instructors. So the spiritual father is not to be merely a model but also a personal teacher and motivator. Paul describes his ministry in three ways, the first of which focuses on encouraging. It's sometimes translated exhorting. It means that Paul set before his people the clear biblical expectations for what a believer is to be and do. When a mentor has a new believer and seeks to train them for the Christian life, there are going to be occasions when they have to say very plainly that they have to break certain habits, cease certain kinds of behavior, and take up new habits and godly actions. And that purpose is not to tear down but to build up. And those who receive that instruction should be grateful for those who care enough about them to exhort them in godliness. Later in this letter, Paul's going to give pointed exhortations, commanding against sexual immorality, exhorting them to brotherly love and a quiet and useful life. And friends, every Christian, not just those who are spiritual fathers, are called to comfort our brothers and sisters. This requires us to come alongside others with words and actions that will strengthen them in Christ. And that kind of comfort may mean bearing a load for them. It may mean prayer. It may mean companionship or sharing our conviction that God is faithful based on our own experience of his loving care and the trials that he's brought us through. And then third, Paul urged these believers to press on in the faith and godliness, urging them to. Live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. The idea here is bearing testimony so as to motivate those who may be growing weary in their walk of faith. Here's the caring heart of a father coming alongside a child and reminding them that all of the labors will be worthwhile in the end. That the cause is noble and it's true and that the power to persevere will be given in answer to the prayer of faith asking God. Paul would provide that same kind of ministry to his closest spiritual son, Timothy, in the final letter that Paul wrote. 
foretelling his own approaching death, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And then to urge Timothy to keep going in a life worthy of the calling, he added this, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And with that hope in mind, Paul urged his spiritual son in that same chapter, Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Friends, just as Paul counseled Timothy, our spiritual encouragement in Christ is intended to keep us going on the path of faith, of godliness, and of Christian service, knowing that in the end it will be worth it all. So here's your take-home truth. Leaders serve God. By serving his people. You're a leader, even if you don't have a title. You influence others, whether you're in vocational ministry or not. The question is, how do you influence them? This is the way we're to influence those that God has brought into our circle of influence. By God's grace, let's ask him to help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the gift of your word that told your people 2,000 years ago what they needed. And because you're an omniscient God and you know all, you could write a book 2,000, complete a book 2,000 years ago that will be as relevant for us today as it was for them then. So, Lord, we need these words. I need these words. And you're the one who gave them, and so we thank you for them. We ask you, Lord, to accomplish your work in us through the instruction of your word. May I be obedient. May your people be obedient. And may we do this because Jesus is worth it. May we do this because the gospel is worth it. May we do this because the people you have bought with your own blood are worth it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.